Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, did you hear that, Cass? I did. <laughs> and I think that you know what that means. And listeners, please let me share with you a little something about my dear beloved co-host because she absolutely loves the holidays. So Cass, I, I, I have been dying to know, have you completely decked out your house for the holidays? And also, are the dogs leaving all of the holiday decorations alone? I have to say we cut it back a little bit. This year, last year, we did two full days of like gift giving during COVID. We like went around to our friends' houses and like did (laughs) singing and caroling and (laughs) secret Santas. And this year we were like, okay, um, we're going to cut it back a little bit. But the Santa Clauses are out all over our house, which means Muffin is completely fixated on all of these (laughs) toys that she can't access, but hopes to someday. So yes, we are decorated this year, just not as much. Yeah, yeah. I'm barely decorated this year, actually, because of dog issues. Yeah. Usually I'm super excited. I have a seven-foot-tall vintage aluminum Christmas tree from the 1950s, which is amazing. But this year, I'm not going to be able to put it up. And and I don't know if in the next few coming years if I'm going to be able to put it up because Clementine is just over a year old now. And she hasn't stopped wanting to, like, steal things. She always wants to steal my bath towels and my kitchen towels and, like, anything you drop on the floor. She thinks it's, like, fun, and she's going to, like, run around the apartment with it. So the problem therein lies is that the 1950s Christmas tree does tend to shed some of its little aluminum, like, pieces and leaves, like, always. It just it just happens. And so she would definitely eat them and, and also probably try to pull the branches out. So... We don't need any future trips to the vet, so. (laughs) I think that's a lot of, yeah, a lot of issues for pet owners, actually. My sister has two cats and like their kitten literally got on top of their tree and pulled their entire Christmas tree down last year. So I'm sure you feel as stressless. Yes, 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 yes. But in the spirit of the holidays, I, I do, I have to say, I do have some mirrored disco ball ornaments up. So that's very me also. Yes. And of course, aside from festive decorations, one of the great longstanding holiday traditions is the exchange of gifts between friends, families, and colleagues, which got us thinking, dress listeners, what exactly were the hot gifts of yesteryear? These days, media outlets bombard us with gift guides aimed directly at holiday shoppers. You know, how do you find the perfect gift for those on your list? But did you know that this is in no way a contemporary phenomenon? (laughs) We see gift guides appearing in printed publications all throughout the 19th century. Yes, and they're very fun. And I just want to state for the record that it was the Victorians who kind of 
started a lot of the Christmas traditions that some of us observe today. And to that end, for our purposes today, I've limited our discussion to more or less a discrete period of 100 years or so, starting in the 1860s. And I also just want to note that I did limit my sources because there are so many sources out there that have gift guides. I did, I had to limit my search to just two magazines, Harper's Bazaar and Vogue, just for the sheer volume of of information out there. So we're not necessarily going to cite the publication for each gift recommendation, but I just wanted to know, everybody to know where I pulled these sources from. Okay, Cass. Are you ready? Because this first gift is for you. Yay. I already know that you're going to love it because I already know that you are a huge fan. Would you like to venture a guess as to what your first gift might be? Well, with the entire hundred years of fashion history (laughs) to choose from, I have absolutely no idea. I might have guessed a pocket, but not within this time frame. (laughs) Right. Okay. So we're going to start in 1868. May I please gift to you dun, 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 a chatelaine? Yes, you can. <laughs> so dress listeners, we have already done an episode on chatelaines, so you can go back and listen to that. But this particular chatelaine that I would like to give you, Cass, comes with scissors, a needle, and a thimble case. And if you like, there is this additional option to add on a vinaigrette. So would you or would you not like me to add on a vinaigrette? (laughs) I mean, if it has anything to do with salad dressing, I might pass because salad dressing is oily. It might get on my fancy skirt, uh, my crinoline (laughs) if I'm in the 1860s. So no, I don't want a vinaigrette. (laughs) Um, I think probably only our listeners who are super, super obsessed with the 19th century might be familiar with this term outside of its use for salad dressing. I, for one, even as a fashion historian, had to go and look it up. And apparently, a vinaigrette was a teeny tiny little box. It was often embossed or otherwise kind of like decorated or embellished. And then when you lifted the outer lid, there was a perforated substrate just beneath the lid. And in the space of the box below the perforated layer, there was um, space to contain aromatic materials, so things that smelled nice. And basically, this was often accomplished by soaking a bit of sponge in a bit of vinegar, which had been infused with the aromatics. And that's why it's called a vinaigrette. So who knew? Who knew? I did not know. Now I know. So yes, maybe you can add a vinaigrette to my show. (laughs) (laughs) And this practice of women carrying small scented boxes on their person, you know, to conceal or mask unfriendly odors wasn't exclusive to the Victorians, of course. It dates back at least to the Middle Ages when upper-class women carried pomanders, often spherical in shape, sometimes shaped like fruits, which contained aromatic substances. And not only did they help mask noxious odors, but at the same time, certain aromatics were also considered to guard against disease. So during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, men and women in Europe carried scented boxes, which were called poncettes. And they were called that because of this perforated layer, which was punched or pounced to create the holes in the surface of the metal. 
Yeah, so it seems that this 19th century vinaigrette on your Chatelaine cast has a lineage of around 700 years. You know, a vinaigrette may be completely obscure today, but these little objects were popular for much longer than they have not been popular. And just in the course of this episode, when prices were given for things, I I would like to relay them just to kind of contextualize things. The price tag for your Chatelaine with a vinaigrette in today's dollars would have been $200 and $100 without the vinaigrette. Hmm, Interesting. And this also makes me think of our body odor episode because obviously, (laughs) didn't we do an episode on deodorant? It's been a while. Yeah, so 1860s and prior, of course, are pre-modern bathing standards. So they needed, Victorians needed to carry, you know, they all needed to carry a little extra something, something. Okay, it's my turn. I would like to gift you, April, some quote-unquote equipment of the wheel from 1896. Okay, well, I'm I'm sure I will love this, but uh, I'm a New Yorker. I don't have a car. So I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to implement said equipment of the wheel. (laughs) Well, au contraire, my friend, because these items are for your bike. Ah. I give to you a, quote, silver cyclometer case costing $4, a bell costing $4.50, and a tool bag with nameplate of silver costing only $1. All things desired of cyclers, be they men or boys, women or girls, only the trouser Guards are limited to sex. Well, thank you, Cass. What a lovely gift. Um, And at the time, this would have been rather expensive, I suppose, converting this um, in a historical price inflation calculator that would have been somewhere around $300. And I guess this makes sense because in the 1890s, cycling was the newest, hottest fad. So, of course, everyone who was ultra fashionable would want nothing but the most luxurious of silver bike accessories. And listeners, we have also already done an episode on bicycling etiquette um, because, yes, there were actually customs and protocols that cyclists were expected to follow during the 1890s. And this is because the Victorians loved their etiquette rituals. Yes, they did. (laughs) And of course, Cass, they just had to bring up the gendering of clothing at the time, didn't they? Yes, no pants for ladies. No pants for ladies. Pants are only for gents. Well, that's not the case anymore, which actually leads me to your next gift from the year 1903. I would like to gift to you stretchers. Hmm. Well, given that you just said this has something to do with gendered clothing, I'm assuming you do not mean stretchers as in the wood over which canvas is stretched for paintings. Yes, you would be correct because these stretchers are for your pants. Quote, it is called the Traveler by its patenter, Mr. Lewis of London, and as the name implies, it is intended to stretch the trousers while in the trunk or portmanteau. The design consists of a piece of buckram or canvas edged with a flat spring wheel and held with a wooden clamp on top and bottom. On this, the trousers are clamped, and then the thing is rolled up and fastened securely with a broad canvas strap. The spring wheel is continuously exerting strong pressure to uncurl, and this is supposed to keep the trousers in a continual state of stretching. 
Supposed, I say, because I have no personal knowledge of whether it actually does or not, <laughs> end quote. Which I think is really funny that the journalists like put that little caveat in there. So basically what a stretcher is, is they were like clamping your trousers taut and then you rolled the whole situation into a barrel shape so it could go in your luggage. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I always have a hard problem packing clothing. <laughs> yeah. You and I both have steamers that we carry around with us yeah. when we travel. Yeah. yeah, and so I guess this is helping you to keep your pants pressed and wrinkle-free, which is something that is always a problem. So thank you. That will certainly come in handy for my next trip. Okay, April, are you ready to open your next present? Yes, please, always. Okay, so much like stretchers, your gift was prized in 1924 for keeping things snug and wrinkle-free, and I present you with a pair of golden garters. Ooh. Yeah, priced at would be what would be almost $400 today, this pair of, quote, gold-mounted garters may be restrung with fresh lengths of elastic without a single stitch. Oh, so this, this is a really lovely gift. I like this one a lot. So it basically, I think what you're saying is it's the little bits of hardware through which elastic is strung, but they're in gold. And then they clip to my stockings to keep them up. And, you know, being from the 1920s, what 1920s flapper would not relish this gift. Although I guess we must mention that some flappers did prefer to roll their stockings down a bit. You could see them under their skirt. And if you want to know the answer why to that, you could head over to our other past episode, Dissecting the Flapper, which we aired in 2018 to learn more. Okay, next up under the tree from Mikas is something very indicative of its era, I have to say, the 1940s, because in 1942, when the U.S. had you know, just barely entered World War II, your husband, Sean, might have been drafted into the armed services. So if that was the case in 1942, I might have headed over to Bergdorf Goodman to buy you a, quote, jeweled service pin made of rubies and sapphires with a platinum set center diamond. It is five-eighths by one-quarter inch. It costs $42 plus tax and is the kind of exquisite small jewel that even the most reticent mother or wife of a serviceman will wear with pleasure, end quote. And this might just be our costliest gift yet, Cass, with $42 in 1942. That would be the equivalent of approximately $675 today. And wear it proudly, I would have... Well, April, apparently we were on the same page thinking about the 1940s in terms of the war. I selected upon recommendation from Vogue of what to get servicemen stationed in, quote, the wind-raked outposts of Panama, Hawaii, and Bermuda for you in Ocarina. Um, okay. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to be delighted by your choice, but I don't have a clue as to what an Ocarina might be. Is it is it a tropical bird? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're not too far off base because it does sing. It is an ancient wind instrument, vaguely similar to a flute, traditionally made from clay or ceramic. It can and has been found in various cultures around the world, including Peru, England, and Italy. Video game enthusiasts might recognize the ocarina from its appearance in the Legend of Zelda games, which I loved when I was a kid. Ah. Well, that would also explain why I have no clue what an opera is, because I am not a video game player. But I do look forward to learning how to play my ocarina, so thank you. 
Okay. So as many of our listeners know, uh, when gifts are exchanged between friends and work colleagues, of which you and I are both cast, oftentimes these gifts take the form of food and beverage. Therefore, from 1956, I would like to offer you a hot Tom and Jerry and also a little bit of syllabub. Interesting. (laughs) Please let me indulge you with the recipes here. So for your hot Tom and Jerry, you're going to want to, quote, beat the yolks of 12 eggs with three quarters of a pound of sugar, which is a lot, (laughs) until they are very stiff and thick. Add one teaspoon each of nutmeg and cinnamon, a pinch of powdered clove, then gradually beat four ounces of Jamaica rum into the batter. Beat the egg whites until stiff and fold them in gently. Chill the whole mixture thoroughly. To serve, mix a heaping tablespoon of the batter into a cup of hot milk or boiling water in a mug. Add a jigger of bourbon. Finally, float cognac on the surface and dust lightly with nutmeg, end quote. So I I don't know, what is this? It's like boozy, battery, hot water with a lot of alcohol in it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure about this. (laughs) No. Somehow, though, I bet like Holly Fry might just take a turn at trying her hand at this. Yeah. She she likes to experiment the strange recipe. Yeah, and if you do try it, dress listeners, let us know. (laughs) Yeah. Please send us photos. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And what about my syllabub? Ah, syllabub. Okay. You might want to take a break after your hot Tom and Jerry cast because we have another boozy number here in the form of a syllabub, which is apparently a Cornish holiday tradition that dates really to like even between the 16th all the way up into the 19th centuries. And a syllabub is sometimes described as a dessert and sometimes it's described as a drink. But in 1901, Harper's Bazaar described it as, quote, cream sweetened and flavored with sherry before it is whipped and piled over calf's foot jelly. And apparently this English tradition made its way all the way to the shores of New England during colonial times. In their book, A History of Connecticut Food, authors Eric Lehman and Amy Naraki quotes someone from, you know, the colonial period named Amelia Simmons, and her instructions for making a syllabub are, get this, please pay close attention, dress listeners, quote, to make a fine syllabub from the cow, sweeten a quart of cider with double refined sugar, grate nutmeg into it, then milk your cow into (laughs) your liquor. And when you have thus added what quantity you think proper, pour half a pint or more of cream in proportion to the quantity of syllabub you want to make of the sweetest cream you can get all over it. So apparently in this this, uh, latter recipe, we are spared the calf's foot jelly, but in Mueller's recipe, we are not spared the cow because (laughs) who has ever heard of milking a cow straight into your cocktail? Just saying. (laughs) Speaking of cows, April, my next gift to you, suggested by Vogue in 1962, might be a bit on the macabre side. So why, oh why, might we inquire, would they be recommending gifting a butcher's rack to anyone? (laughs) I don't know. 
I know our listeners know that I do not eat meat, which is why this one was a tad horrifying for me. Vogue recommends gifting a butcher's rack, which has hooks for suspending animals for the butchering process as an entryway rack where one can hang anything from old umbrellas to spare suits of armor with 16 hooks, $25. And then they give you the address of where you can acquire this in NYC. So maybe it's not to actually hang meat. They're just suggesting to a repurposed butcher's rack. <laughs> yes. And, and also, first of all, who has suits of armor, let alone spare suits of armor? <laughs> I don't know. And by my calculations, $25 in 1962 would be around $220 or so. But yeah, I'm with you, Cass. I'm, I'm going to pass on that one. It, it might be just a tad too morbid and gruesome for my taste and decor. But I have to say, This does bring up a very good point because not all of the gift guides were for hits. Like, these are the best things to buy. Surprisingly, I found a lot of information on what not to gift as well. So would you like to know what history says not to gift? I am very curious. Okay, so this one was a tad shocking to me because over and over for Decades, starting in the 19th century, moving onwards, the gift guides recommend not gifting robes, socks, and slippers. Quote, slippers are a sad mistake, proclaims Harper's Bazaar in 1894. And I guess apparently these gifts have been considered kind of commonplace, trite, and much over-gifted for decades. And, you know, this year I have to say, I did get my stepdad some socks. And when I read that, I was kind of like, oh no. (laughs) Yeah, things have not changed. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they are very cool socks. His name is actually woven into the socks themselves from this very cool company. They're not monogrammed. It's actually woven in, but I don't know. I have a tendency to disagree about the gifting of socks because I like fun socks. I will always accept socks as a gift. (laughs) And in fact, Cass, I think a few years ago, just completely randomly for no particular reason, I I gave you some Britney Spears socks. Yeah, actually, I think you gave me clueless socks, which is- Oh, clueless socks. Right, right, right. That's equally- You're right, you're right. Yes, equally loved by me and part of my 90s childhood, so. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it was. A few other items which show up frequently on gift guides, particularly during the 19th century, are crafted from materials that would actually be illegal today. So you have the gifting of personal grooming sets that was exceedingly popular during the 19th century. And those are items like hairbrushes, combs, manicure sets, scissors, razors, tweezers, mirrors, and even shoe buttoners were part of many men's dressing tables and were displayed in luxury materials like silver, but also ivory and tortoiseshell materials, which are incredibly problematic, if not illegal for us today. But at this time, were widely used, which is one of the reasons they are illegal today. Yes, 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 yes. Obviously, that's a pass from us, as is also our next gift, which was recommended by Vogue in 1977. And I'm going to say this is a pass, not necessarily because of issues of legality, but rather price. Quote, Want to be a sport for Christmas? They question. One of the ways to increase winter recreational possibilities is to install a platform tennis court on one's own (laughs) acreage. Platform tennis is the slashing riot of activity, best played in crisp temperatures that has taken the East Coast by storm and is rapidly rumbling westward. Deluxe aluminum prefabricated heated 
to melt ice and snow, not to warm the players model, equipped fully with a complement of lights for night play, can be installed by R.J. Riley Jr. Company of Danbury, Connecticut for around $23,000. For something a bit more modest, a wooden court, also with lights, is available for around $14,000. And um, yeah, that's a lot of money, but uh, it becomes <laughs> much more money when you adjust it for inflation. That would be anywhere between a hundred and sixty thousand dollars today. So I'm so 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 sorry, Cass, but I don't think that I'm going to be gifting you a tennis court this particular year, or maybe ever. I forgive you. <laughs> Uh, Dress listeners, that brings us through over 100 years of history recommended it gifts. April and I aren't exactly sure all of these gifts suit us, which probably explains why we are amused by this 1972 article in Vogue entitled, 20 Ways to Say Thank You for a Christmas Gift You Hate. A couple of my favorites include, my dear, so few people have your taste. And my friends were absolutely flabbergasted. Yeah, and I'm going to go with their recommendations of, quote, I've always fancied myself articulate, but words fail me. And also, of course, I never would have bought this for myself. So passive-aggressive <laughs> ways to say you don't like yeah. something. <laughs> I just love the fact that somebody actually sat down and wrote that article. It's amazing. Dress listeners, we hope that you have enjoyed a very quick romp through holiday gifting of the past. And may you consider what holiday hits and misses reside in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Cass, as you already know, this episode concludes season four of Dressed. Can you believe it? I know. I can't. It's like, it's just like it was yesterday where we were practicing all of our episodes before recording them. Those days are gone. (laughs) Yeah, no, we just go straight into the recording. That's what happens. We've come a long way, dress listeners. It's been so fun. Yes. Four years and approximately 300 episodes produced at this point. Hence why I can't remember if we did an episode on deodorant or not, because there is quite a large repertoire of dressed episodes at this point. Yeah, so we're going to be taking a small break before we launch season five dress listeners. We're going to take some time off, like hopefully yourselves, to enjoy friends and family over the holidays. But don't worry, we will be back at the end of January 2022 with lots more fashion history content coming your way. In fact, we might just be working on a few season five episodes already. And we want to sincerely thank all of our listeners who've joined us along this journey and wish a very happy holidays and a happy new year for those of you who celebrate. Yes, and everyone, please enjoy the season, but please also remember to stay safe when celebrating and or traveling this year. More dress coming in 2022. And if you would like to submit suggestions for topics for season five of Dressed, you can do so by emailing us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And if you have a moment to spare and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, it's always very much appreciated. Also appreciated our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. That does it, Dress listeners. We are signing off for 2021 and we will catch you in early 2022. Dress 
The History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.